This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. This podcast was recorded on traditional Denizal land. And welcome to For the Peace. I'm Jenna Morland, and I'm here with my co-host and producer of the podcast, Trey Lapashinsky. Hello, hello. And oh boy, what a conversation with Christy Jordan Fenton. Uh, an author, a business owner, and an Indigenous advocate who grew up on a farm in Alberta. In this episode, we delve into Christy's journey growing up with a Cree Métis stepfather who went to a residential school and her partnership with her mother-in-law, Uliman, or Margaret. She was the inspiration behind the books they co-authored and was a residential school survivor as well. Both Trey and I are Métis, and we're both on our own journeys of discovering more about our identity and our own Métis heritage, and we actually find ourselves struggling with a lot of the same issues even though we're, we are very different and we have very different stories, which means there are more people out there who might feel this way. And maybe for you, it isn't about your ethnicity. Maybe your struggles are with sexuality or your religious views or maybe your political views. Before we even put out our first episode, we talked about identity and we were looking at who we can talk to because this is something very important to ourselves. And this is something that we needed someone who might relate to us. And we felt that Christy, through her life, she might have within herself felt some identity issues and she delves into a little bit in this episode specifically when we're talking about our identities and she also talks about someone who might be struggling outside of of us or herself what they might do or what she would say to them this episode just means so much to me and i believe it does with jenna as well and uh we also get a little bit more personal in the episode which we haven't in past episodes usually you know it's just we're asking questions yeah we're talking we're having a conversation but we don't go in too too much about ourselves and i think this one kind of opens that up a bit for anyone that's interested just to let you know that's going to be happening (laughs) (laughs) and of course this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of troyer ventures troyer has been serving our community and the energy industry with tank and vac trucks since 2000 they're built on the principles of hard work service and community and they're proud to offer the financial support to make this program possible let's get right into it here's christy jordan fenton You were raised by a Cree Métis stepfather who went to a residential school. When did you first learn of residential schools? So yeah, I was raised by a Cree Métis man from Green Lake, Saskatchewan, and he was a residential school survivor. It wasn't something that he was able to talk about very much, though there was a lot of things left over from having been a residential school. I lived in communities where a lot of my friends' parents and grandparents had been to residential school, so I was one of the, I guess, few settler people who grew up with an awareness about residential school. But most of the stories I had heard were really horrific stories um, that we're starting to hear now. Um, These are things that have always been talked about in Indigenous circles and and weren't a secret. So um, growing up with a a Cree Métis um, stepbrother and stepsister, seeing that they didn't think that being Cree was um, as cool as I thought it was. I thought it was cool we'd go camping and um, my stepfather built this like big tent city and we'd be making bannock on a stick and he just knew all this bushcraft and I thought that was really awesome. But they didn't see that the same way. So 
when I um, met my ex-husband, uh, he was half uh, Inavalic. Uh, it was really important for me when I had children that they wouldn't grow up feeling that same way. And I think part of the reason I thought that people felt that way or young people felt that way is because they never seen images of themselves in a positive light. And if they did, it was always like the Pocahontas, which was nothing like any Indigenous person I've ever met, even remotely. Um, or it was the Indigenous people always losing. So I thought one way that I could help them feel good about themselves and um, sort of insulate them against racism uh, that they would encounter, obviously, in their lives was if they saw their grandmother as their biggest hero. So I started asking her um, for stories. And also, as living um, in the territory of the Danaza, which is uh, where I met Margaret, where I had my children, we were at, at a territory, um, and they weren't in the territory of Inavaluet. So I wanted them to know about uh, their culture. And so she told me stories about hunting uh, polar bears and wolves and traveling by dog sled and just like the most amazing stories you could imagine um, for an upbringing. And then my curiosity in that, so that I could make sure my children knew, that led then to um, her feeling safe enough to open up and start talking about her residential school experiences. Um, So when we did start writing her residential school experiences, there was still always that... um, in, in my mind that I wanted, I didn't want my children to think, oh, like, you know, my, my poor grandma went to this residential school and it was so bad for her. I wanted them to think, wow, my grandma's really tough. She went through this unbelievable experience and she was her own hero at a really young age. Um, so I guess that's kind of where uh, writing the stories about Margaret came from. Also writing Fatty Legs, it's really for um, around grade, uh, or like around, um, yeah, I guess like grade grade six to grade eight sort of um, can be read by younger grades and older grades. But I don't think it's coincidental that I ended up writing it for the same age I was when I started getting very curious about residential school and um, why my stepfather was struggling with some of the things that he was. So maybe in a way, I wasn't just writing it for my children, but maybe my child self. Yeah, I I think uh, the book not only talks about the residential school side of it, but it also talks about bullying. Mm. There's there's a lot of other <laughs> references that kind of, I don't know, people can relate to. Um, and she persevered through all of that anyways. When the book was first released, was, was Margaret Uliman, was she surprised by how many people could relate to her? Very, very, very surprised. She only gave in to me writing her story because she said nobody was ever going to publish it. And um, that even if they did publish it, nobody was going to read it. So it was something I would get out of my system and she wouldn't hear about it anymore and it'd be over with. And now we're actually at the 12th anniversary. We've had a 10th anniversary edition published, but 12th anniversary, there's a a music video. There's been um, several musical productions. Um, She traveled all over. Um, we went to Havana, Alaska, um, Seattle, all over the place um, and all over Canada from coast to coast to coast. And she had, had never expected that that, that was going to happen. She didn't think anybody would care about her story. It's pretty wild what she would have seen in her lifetime from where she came from to what she, oh my gosh, it's, it's just so cool. Uh, and so during my research, <clears throat> I watched a video of you speaking about like the clothing uh, that 
they made them wear at the residential school and how the outsiders wanted them to live and dress like they were in London or Paris. Hence the dress, the dresses and the stockings and stuff like that. Uh, but they weren't in London. They were by a freezing ocean. Uh, and so you, you said that one of the most important things we have is our own common sense and forcing the children to wear clothing that wasn't suitable for the weather made them second guess their instincts. How did that affect Uliman in her adult years? Yeah, I, I think um, anybody that I've ever met who went to residential school, there is that sometimes questioning or, um, or, or, or sometimes doing things that don't necessarily make sense because you're told that this is the way it should be. Um, and beyond, beyond the, the common sense and the questioning what was common sense is that erasure of ancestral knowledge. Each generation came up with a better and a better and a better way to live in the Arctic where the ocean was freezing for at least 10 months of the year. Um, and when the outsiders came and the settlers came, their ancestral knowledge was like you said, how to live in Paris or London. It made sense for there, but it didn't make sense for here. And it erased that knowledge um, they were taught to devalue the knowledge of their ancestors when really um, even today scientists are finding that like caribou fur for example is one of the warmest materials on earth they don't have synthetics that are that warm but um, the outsiders thought they knew better so it for several generations it it wiped out that it it, it wiped out that ancestral knowledge it it, um, almost erased it it made people um devalue their own common sense. You see younger generations, though, that are really revitalizing it. There's a number of um, amazing Indigenous academics who are doing things like studying the ancestral knowledge of like how warm is caribou fur, um, things like that, bringing that back. Do you think it made her question just like everyday decisions more? Um, I I do think that she was was like a really remarkable woman because she was um, very strong, very determined, um, knew her own mind in a lot of ways, but I did see sometimes where she maybe felt un- unsure or felt uncomfortable in situations. Probably didn't let like people who weren't close to her wouldn't necessarily have seen that. She always came across as very confident. But I know even when we go to school visits and at nighttime when we were like back in a hotel and sharing a hotel room and debriefing about the day and different things that she wasn't sure that it went went that well or um, that she made the right decision and um, feeling unsure about that. But she always came across as a confident person, even if she did have um, things going on inside. I think she navigated it a lot better than most people who went through that experience, though. So based off Fatty Lakes and just the story, it seems Uliman was very immersed in her culture before going to the residential school. Now, coming out of it, she didn't know her own language. You know, she looked a lot different. Her mother didn't even recognize her. Did it take her some time to get back into her culture, to get back into her language, to to be in the place that she should be and that she, she grew up? And, and how long kind of did it take her? Did it still affect her for years afterwards? Yeah, it um, because she wasn't allowed to speak her own language for that whole time. She was at the school. Uh, she lost her ability to access the portion of her brain where that was stored. She lost those pathways. She said it took about six months to be able to just fluently speak. When she did relearn her language, she made sure she never lost it again. So, you know, that was about six months um, she had to relearn to um, be able to stomach her traditional foods, which are actually pretty yummy, but she, um, after having this bland diet of uh, cabbage soup and oatmeal 
uh, bland oatmeal. That was difficult. And she had missed out on a lot of the learning that would have been important for a young woman, um, cultural learning, uh, things around hunting and uh, fishing and um, different things like that, that she missed those rites of passage she should have been going through. So she had to catch up on all of that. And when she relearned that, she made sure that um, she definitely did not ever, ever lose that again. And based on the struggles she's had, you even described her. She was a strong, determinated woman. Now thinking about the thousands and thousands of Indigenous children that were in these schools, do you ever kind of look at it like, you know, some of them didn't have this trait and how it affected them? Do you think, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on that when you kind of put it in a, a bigger perspective of, of all the kids and kind of what we know now? Yeah, um, well, Margaret was fortunate that, I mean, she wasn't fortunate that she went to school, but she was fortunate that she was eight years old before she went to school. Many residential schools, children were leaving, um, the average was between four and 14 years old, and they might be there the whole time. So Margaret went at eight. She was able to have quite a bit of cultural foundation before she went. So I think that probably helped. And then after two years, went home and spent another year at home. For a lot of people who went to to residential school, especially for a really long time, they go back to their communities. And the, and the whole purpose of residential school wasn't so much what they wanted the children to learn. It was what they didn't want them to learn, which was that ancestral knowledge so that um, they could, it was, it was part of removing children from the land and removing Indigenous peoples from the land. Um, so they would go home. They couldn't communicate with their families. If you couldn't communicate with your grandparents, you couldn't learn that ancestral knowledge that you needed to survive off the land. Um, they... Um, Indigenous children were expected to really have a sense of taking initiative and they are expected, even today, expected, you see a job that needs to be done, you don't wait for somebody to tell you, you get off your butt and you go and do it. But um, at the schools, you couldn't hardly breathe without getting permission first and you would be punished really severely. So I've heard of lots of elders talking about going home and they would see something needed to be done, but they would stand there and wait to be asked to do it or get permission and that was interpreted as they were lazy or they were stupid. And so this became really shaming. Um, Margaret had a close relationship with her father and with her grandparents. She was able to fit back in, but a lot of people were not able to. Then the purpose of residential school really was to get the children off the land and into the cities doing jobs that nobody else wanted to do, basically. Um, so when they went home and there was this whole disconnect with culture, that happened to a lot of people. I, I really think the other heroes are, for example, um, my elders, I do Lakota ceremony with the Kainai Blackfoot. And um, I guess the majority of the elders there would be Kainai Blackfoot, but we also have elders um, from other areas as well, many of them residential school survivors. And to know how much they had to fight to either retain or regain language and culture and then um, to be strong enough to pass that on, not only to the next generations, but also somebody like myself coming um, from outside is absolutely heroic. If it wasn't for those um, people like Margaret or um, like my elders who worked so hard to hang on to that and then to pass it on, um, we would have lost infinite knowledge that is really important for us living today. In the book, you, at the very beginning, uh, there's a very well-written paragraph on a note on the right to silence, and I'm just going to read it right now for everybody to hear. 
the authors would like to ask the readers to be mindful of the right to silence. While Margaret Uliman is open about sharing her experiences at residential school, it is important to stress that many residential school survivors will not wish to talk about or revisit what they have experienced. Best practices include respecting their silence. This extends to all experiences of Indigenous trauma. We are overwhelmed by the level of inquisitiveness that has replaced a century and a half of horrific secrecy, but encourage those who want to know more to seek out sources where knowledge has been shared freely and to accept what is shared on the terms by which it is given. And I just think that it that's really important for everyone to hear because there is so much inquisitiveness right now and a lot of it is coming from a good place, but that doesn't always mean that you have the right to ask, I guess. So I, I just think that this is very well written and thank you for writing it. I, I, I do have to give credit to the idea of right to silence comes out of Colombia when they started their um, truth and reconciliation process. There was um, a lot of mental health workers and different people saying, well, talk about your experiences, talk about what happened. Um, you know, with with warfare and, and everything going on. And some of the women in the villages said, you know what, we don't, we don't want to talk about it. We've lived it. And now we're out of it. And we just want to, so they had this movement where they said we, and it's still going on, they just wanted to dance and sing. And they had a, a had a song um, that they dance and sing to that basically says we don't want to cry anymore. We just want to live and be happy and, and dance and sing. Um, and I was really glad that I was introduced to that concept. And I think this goes back to that, um, the positive experiences, like uh, Richard Wagamese was a mentor of mine. And I know that he said, and th- this was taken way out of context, that um, his mother said that residential school wasn't all bad because she was able to keep a good house and she was very tidy. And we have to understand that for survivors, they're choosing how to frame their lives. You can't be stuck in trauma all the time. You can't. Um, you can't move on with your life if you're stuck in that victimhood all the time. Um, some people like Margaret can delve into some of the, the rougher things that happen and claim that. For other people, it's like um, shutting, just shutting the door to the bad things that happen and focusing on the good. And other people just don't want to revisit at all in any way or talk about it. Um, what's happened now, the these graves that are being found has not been a secret to anybody who's been... Um, who went to a residential school, who's heard residential school stories. This has been known for quite a long time. Um, But now the rest of the world is finding out. So they're all, everybody's very curious. And it's good that people find out. But I do have elders um, who've gone to residential school who all of a sudden their phones are being flooded with, can you come speak at our school without an understanding of all this processing? Yes, it's been known for a long time that there's been these graves across Canada. But there wasn't... When it, when it became public, this was like this whole new mourning and healing that needed to happen. And in the, the quest to know more about it, sometimes people haven't been very sensitive um, to supporting um, those people, even people who are already sharing their stories. They needed time to step back and process that. And there's not always been the sensitivity around that. We uh, tend as outsiders to think that um, we have a right to these stories. It's part of our history, so we have a right. So we're going to do the right thing, and we're going to go extract these stories. Um, but there, there's definitely needs to be a right to silence. Not everybody wants to talk about it. And I have seen so many times where people go up to an elder, um, someone who's a settler goes up to an elder and will say, 
oh, did you go to residential school? Were you abused there? It's just, and and no concept of how really not okay that is to do that. That's not the way you open. Insensitive, yeah. It seems like common sense not to do that to me. I mean, I understand the curiosity and maybe some people don't see that, but... I mean, I feel like it's been well known, like even you saying, you know, growing up in a smaller community with your stepfather who went to residential school, things get around in in a smaller community and still you didn't know much about a residential school because everyone's so tight lipped, right? Even when I speak to Indigenous children, I say, you know, you might have a family member who went to residential school and now you've heard more about it. You're very curious about it, but be really careful how you approach um, approach. The, the adults in your life who might have gone to residential school and be prepared for them not to want to talk about it. And you just give them a hug and say, you know, like, that's okay, Coco, you don't have to talk about it. Um, I know for when the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission first began, and there was a lot of talk about it, uh, uh, at that time, a lot of people were ready to start telling their children about it, but couldn't use their own voice to do it. And I can't tell you how many um, elders came up to us and said that they used Margaret's story, they used fatty legs, they would get the book and give it to their children and say, my experiences were a little different, I went to a different school, but this is kind of what happened. Or um, or even adult children who wanted to know what happened to their parents using, um, using fatty legs as a sort of a segue into approaching their parents to talk about it a little bit more. What we know in, in 2022 and have heard so many brave stories from residential school survivors they each had their own story obviously but they were the same in the the abuse and what kind of went on at the schools and you know some were unfortunately uh you know they weren't able to survive through those times um a couple years ago there was a controversy at an abbotsford school uh, you had commented on it uh, through, I believe it was a CBC article, or it was just another outlet. A, a teacher was uh, assigned children to write positives about residential schools after reading Fatty Legs. My question is, as, as more and more survivors share their stories, how important is it that they are told from a per- third party, such as a teacher, uh, in a correct way without misinformation, without being misinterpreted, while respecting right to silence of the survivors? Uh, like Justice Marie Sinclair, who was the head of, and Senator, um, who was the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, said that there needed to be space for people to share their um, positive stories as well. And Margaret sometimes told funny stories about residential school and uh, when we go speak to people people would end up laughing they would say that was so surprising but we also have to put that in context so those stories belong to the people who experience them their families um, if they want to have those and and they have the right to have those happy memories but to put it in context why did they have to be in those abusive situations in the first place children are children no matter what they're always going to make the best they're always going to make the best of wherever they're at. Um, be, children that were raised in in, uh, in Holocaust camps and concentration camps came out with stories of the make belief that they played. Um, we think about, um, I mean, there's so many different horrific things that children have been through. Um, but but why did they have to go through that just to go to school? So just because there might be something positive that happened at the school doesn't doesn't make it okay. And I don't think that should ever be the focus on learning about residential school. And as I said, if people like Margaret wanted to share 
fun stories that happened at the school that belongs to them, but I, I don't think that that belongs to anybody um, outside that experience. How long did it take her to open up and to really get to a point where she was okay with the story being out in the world? Um, to write Fatty Legs was, it took us two years um, from the time that I heard Margaret's story and started writing on paper until we had a book in hand. So a lot of that was Margaret being able to open up and share her story. That was a bit difficult. She had negotiated her own terms with this, with her experiences and didn't necessarily want to talk about some of the more awful things that happened. Also, I some of that I have to own because I, I just felt so angry when I started finding out what happened. And this happened to Margaret, who I, I loved a lot, and it had happened to my stepfather. And I had to process that when I was trying to to write as her and through her eyes, I was putting a lot of anger into it, which isn't the way children see the world. They're just so resilient. They just, this is what's happening in my world and I'll move through it. Um, I, I did have to do a lot of research and then come back to Margaret with questions. And sometimes she'd talk about them and sometimes she wouldn't want to. I remember one time she's, uh, the editor actually, Maggie DeVries, she had uh, sent me some questions to ask Margaret. And so I went and asked her and she's like, why do they want to know that? What do they do in writing a book? And then we both started laughing because it's like, yes, Margaret, we're writing a book. Um, but I, I, I wish I, I had been a little bit um, even more patient, but I, there were times I had to be patient and it was like a couple of weeks that I couldn't work on writing anything because Margaret didn't feel like talking about, or I had to get creative with the story. And Margaret would say, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to talk about that. So then I'd have to change the plot in a different direction and work around it because she had that right. Yeah, that, that's so complicated. Like writing is already hard enough. And then having like a co-writer and then even the editing process, I can't even imagine. I hated going through the editing process <laughs> and just having to even have that extra element of having somebody else okay it as well. It must have been... I'd, complicated but the end result so gratifying and that was for four books yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we got much better after the first book um, every other book afterwards took around six months sometimes less um, so we we definitely got a lot better at it but um, I was very lucky in the beginning that Anik Press who published Fatty Legs and and the other books um, paired me with Maggie DeVries who um, has been uh, she's a settler woman but um her sister was one of the Picton uh, victims, and she was very involved in the missing and murdered Indigenous women movement from quite early on, and um, really did a lot of advocating to have the police pay attention that um, these women were going missing. So she had an adopted sister um, who was Indigenous, who was a, a, Picton, a Picton victim. So... Um, I think she had spent a lot of time in Indigenous community and hearing people with their traumatic stories. And she mentored me, not just in writing, she's a, a phenomenal uh, writing professor, but she also mentored me a lot in how to um, to approach Margaret with the stories and, and how to work with the stories. And um, I owe a lot to her for what she taught me. With your experiences, what would you say to a non-Indigenous person who, after hearing about the 216, after hearing about all these stories that are coming out, and they're feeling that anger, what would you say to them to help them with that process? Um, well, I, I think sometimes people feel anger because they feel responsible. Um, if you weren't directly involved in the residential schools, there's no need to feel responsible. But we do have to recognize that the fallout of that, the removal of people from the land, 
um, that has enabled the settler community to have a lot of benefits and people are still paying the price for that. So I, I always like to talk about moving forward from today. So there's nothing that you can do about what happened in the past, but um, you know, if there's a sisters in spirit vigil going on, so people are, are um, walking to, um, to bring awareness about the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls um, and two spirit people show up um, bring a case of water if there is anything going on stop into your local uh, friendship center or um, wherever it is you can and ask like is there something that I can do to help or you know um, you know like I said bring bring the case of water donate the box of donuts whatever it is if, if you're feeling anger it's probably because you feel guilt you don't need to feel guilt um, you can move that guilt into action and being a good ally an accomplice, not just an ally, an accomplice. Uh, I was wondering, when when did Margaret start to want to change her name back to Uliman? When did she start to consider that? Because that's a huge identity thing, because she was given Margaret when she was eight years old. Mm. So how, how, what got her to that point? Yeah, um, I think it had a lot to do. I want to say it was maybe around the time of when I was eight, when we started talking to younger classes and using when I was eight, because she's mostly referred to as Uliman in that. Um, and it was the it was beautiful. It was the children that brought that back because children would get mad at me for calling her Margaret. <laughs> and um, but, you know, living in Fort St. John, um, everybody we knew called her Margaret and it would be like kind of strange if I was like, oh, I'm going to pick up Uliman and they didn't know who that was. So the children insisted on calling her Uliman. They started writing her letters as Uliman and she really started claiming it back. She made her Facebook account. She used Uliman um, for her Facebook account and it um, and, and really took that name back. But she was like probably in her 80s already or close to it when she uh, took that name back. Her birth name, I should mention, when her father registered her birth, he registered her as Margaret because there were laws that you couldn't register traditional names. And actually up until just a few years ago, there was a lot of complications with registering birth uh, traditional birth names, especially if they had um, syllabics and characters that are not part of um, the alphabet that we standardly use. So, uh, but that wasn't a name that she, she grew up using. And then of course, um, she goes to school and they're like, you can't use your traditional name here. That's not what's on your birth certificate. And then going to school, everybody was calling each other by those Christian names. So they go back to the community, they keep using that. And then, um, when she moved to down to Fort St. John, the biggest thing on her mind probably was like, I just want to fit in and get along with my new husband's friends. And so bring in a traditional name wouldn't have been something she wanted to do. She just wanted to be Margaret and fit in. Um, but it was beautiful to see her reclaim her traditional name. She actually, um, she did more than that. So this is a little bit uh, off topic, but when she went back home from residential school, um, her and her friend Agnes were helping out this older woman, this elder, and they would go and get her like blocks of ice to melt for um, drinking water and um, just bring her things she needed. So one day they show up there and the woman has out um, needle and thread and ink and she wants to tattoo the girls and being um, tattooed like on the chin and the face um, would be like a like an honor 
and uh, but not from Margaret and Agnes. They've now been to residential school. They're a lot more colonized. So they got terrified and they ran away. And she said she always felt so bad about that because the woman really wanted to honor her, but she was so scared to get her face tattooed. So um, she never did get her face tattooed. But one day we were in Vancouver. Margaret was already in her 80s. And we were doing, we're on a book tour. And we always shared a hotel room together. And I could hear her up and pacing around really early in the morning. So I knew there's something on her mind. So I get up and I say, okay, what's going on, Margaret? And she said, I think I want to get a tattoo. And she had seen one of her granddaughters um, had gotten some traditional tattoos. And I said, do you know what you want to get? She said, yeah, yeah. So she described it to me and we drew it out and it was a symbol for caribou. And I said, you know, Margaret, we're, um, our school visits today are downtown Vancouver and we finish like at lunchtime and there's a ton of tattoo shops. So I got on, I think like Yelp or something and like searched for a tattoo shop and they had an opening and we went and Margaret got um, a traditional tattoo, but not on her face. She got it on her wrist. And then after that, the piercing woman who was there, young woman, um, was the, um, I think it was either her parents or grandparents had been to residential school. She was Métis, um, covered in piercings, very cool woman, but covered in piercings. They get talking. She talked Margaret into finally getting her ears pierced. So in her (laughs) 80s, Margaret got her ears pierced, but only after she got her tattoo. (laughs) So my my oldest daughter now has the same tattoo, and I believe that some of her other granddaughters have now um, gotten the same tattoo, and if they haven't yet, wow. they're they're planning on it. I wanted to bring this up over several episodes that we have done, and it's about, um, with us talking about identity, I think this is perfect. Nowadays, with all the stories coming out and all the knowledge coming out, uh, I, I find it so neat that it's so accessible, like with TikTok. For yeah. as you were talking about the the tattoos, I just want to show you this for our listeners. We can describe it. I later, can already see without looking at Sheena Novalinga. Yes, Sheena Novalinga. Yeah. So she she got her traditional tattoos on her, wow. her face, she's and beautiful. she's so beautiful. And uh, a Sephora model as well. Yeah, yeah, and and I just want your opinion on you know how you know i believe she's younger than me and i'm just turning 30 this month right like it's it's just coming out it's so easy for for um the younger generation to go on tiktok and learn what's your thoughts on that to just the fact that i i think it's part of the reconciliation process and and oh. the the knowledge that's out there now i i actually have started doing now school visits that aren't even a huge amount about fatty legs it was about all the great um the new generation of youth and how they're reclaiming things with like TikTok and Instagram and I totally love Sheena Novalinga. Um, her mom is also a really strong, beautiful woman um, who took her to go get her tattoos. She's a Sephora model now. The first Indigenous Sephora model was Serene Carson Fox, who has actually played on the stage, played Margaret. Um, she's an actress and a dancer and she's played um, Margaret, um, also comes from a family with a residential school history. Um, so yeah, now as uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, Sheena Novlinga will do um, makeup tutorials on how to like how she like clears where her tattoos are, but does her makeup is beautiful. Um, another really um, beautiful one is Tia Woods, who is Cynthia Jim, uh, Elder Cynthia Jim's daughter. Um, Cynthia Jim is a um, an elder and ceremony keeper, but she is also a residential school survivor, and her daughter does all sorts of videos on Indigenous culture. Um, lots of hair teaching uh, videos, and she's got one um, with her mom, which well, is a couple with her mom braiding her hair, but one of them she's talking, um, it's, you know, they, they use the audio from um, other things, but it's like, ta- it's basically like telling her to be proud of her, uh, that her eyes aren't blue. Um, 
which makes me emotional because my youngest child always had a big issue with not having the same eye color that I have. I have blue eyes. My youngest child, I always said, had eyes like river stones. So when I saw that, I like burst into tears knowing that um, the young girl and her mom were making that. Her mom is a residential school survivor. And here she is like telling her to be proud of her brown eyes, which has always been a struggle with my youngest child to be proud of that. Um, just uh, there's there are like so many amazing youth on TikTok right now, and a lot of them have their parents and grandparents even on TikTok sharing teachings. It's a it's amazing. Well, with Sheena Nova is her and her mom they do throat singing, which is yeah. the first time I've ever experienced that, and I just constantly watch it. Like they just go back and forth, and it's just really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know too much about throat singing, but I know it's a tradition for them. And it, it's just really cool to see that. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of, uh, of TikTok personalities that I follow who are even from Edmonton, like me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're one of them, um, she's from Onion Lake, which is I worked in Lloydminster, started my broadcasting career there. So it's just, it's kind of cool. Like, I, I almost feel close to them. And now where we're going with Before the Peace and talking to all these Indigenous peoples, it's it's really neat to know that I can get it anywhere. Like, I can learn at the drop of a hat by going on my phone, right? It's just really cool, I find. And, and I'm so excited for the younger generation. And with things coming out that are you know, traumatic and, and not as cool, uh, but at the same token, you hear that. And then you can also learn more about the culture. I just find it's, it's, it's awesome I, right now. And I love it too. Like my, my um, oldest daughter is a content creator. Uh, I think she's, she's on TikTok, but she's probably had her most um, success with Instagram by far. She loves experimenting with makeup, but she's always said, my face doesn't make sense. Um, she's very pale. She's even paler than I am. Um, very white looking, but her face has very Inuk features. And she's always had a struggle with that. So we're actually um, in talks about doing a book that um, she's very into photography. Um, so uh, her traditional name is Kugyuk, which means swan. Um, Emma Fenton is her name. And we're talking about doing a book where um, she loves photography, where she takes pictures of different people who are um, mixed race and um, who feel like their face doesn't make sense but she does a lot of um, experimenting with self-photography and um, and experimenting with makeup is her way to kind of uh, reconcile that she feels like her face doesn't make sense. I think it's so cool that this younger generation is just owning their identities so much differently than all of us did. It's, yeah. it's just, like even the fact that this younger generation was part of the reason why she ended up changing her name back like that is just so powerful and like I, I love that it's we both me and Trey have struggled with the fact that like I am Métis but I I'm very white I'm very pale <laughs> and uh, I I really struggled with I guess in I never really fully understood my identity until I became a mom. And I think that's because I just didn't even really know what identity was, what it meant. I don't know. Like there's just so many nuances and levels to it. But I do think, especially growing up in the nineties in a small town, I I lived down in Cranbrook uh, growing up. So it's very similar, I would say to Fort St. John in the size and everything like that. Residential schools weren't really talked about, um, a lot of things weren't really talked about, like sexuality. Um, and it's just so different now. And I'm I'm so happy for this younger 
group of kids coming up so that they have more access to just owning themselves. <laughs> well, and I think we can learn a lot from, I don't know, sort of indigenizing um, the sense of identity. We really need to decolonize that sense of identity. We were um, talking just before we, we started recording this about um, where I fit in with identity and people want me to put it in a neat little box. But the truth is that, um, you know, I was raised by a Cree Métis stepfather and that um, I married an Inavalok man. Um, I've been adopted by George um, um, George Desjardins of West Moberly First Nation. So he is Cree, Danaza, and Soto. So that's a little complex there. Um, and we do ceremony. It's a Lakota ceremony that we do at the Kainai Blackfoot. So now bring my children into the next generation, how they explain their indigeneity. It's, it's complicated. And I, I think we have to make space for that. I see a lot of children who are mixed, um, of mixed ancestry, or uh, and they might be mixed even in the different indigenous nations that their ancestors come from. Um, and and even, like, you know, where I do ceremonies, we have people who are Cree, we have people who are Anishinaabe, but then they're doing Lakota ceremony with the Blackfoot. And it's okay, I think, for it to be complex. For Métis people, um, it can be very complicated to explain that. And, and how come you're not darker and how come you look like this I, I one of my great heroes uh, literary heroes would be drew hayden taylor who's phenomenal but he's you know almost blonde blue-eyed um anishinaabe guy um who grew up on the res but when he he's, he talked about one time he went to germany they flew him over there they were staging a play of his and they were so disappointed because he didn't look like what they thought he should look like and i i think that decolonizing that um is something that we need to give to our children, but also our children aren't waiting to be given that. They're just taking it. And um, TikTok is just one great example how they are doing that. Yeah, I love that they're just taking it. And I, I love the way you worded that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, I just love how it's it's almost evolved. The thought process has, uh, has evolved. It's like going off a of Jenna's story, mine, again, I'm Métis, very pale. More so people look at me at this tall white dude and uh you know because i'm almost seven feet tall i'm a very large that's what they look at and and you know growing up i knew i was made but it wasn't talked about a lot and you know as i got older i started learning more and more outside of school i did not learn about residential schools and about indigenous culture and stuff in general in schools which i'm i'm glad it's getting more and more into the curriculum now but anyways as i start learning more and more and asking my grandmother more questions um i she i remember the first time she got her her metis card um her and my auntie got it and they asked me to get it as well and i refused i did not want to i I almost felt like i went my whole life with this privilege Mm -hmm. of how i looked and i almost felt like i would be taking away from people who needed you know the, the their card or needed the benefits from that card and i think now you know now it's almost a new chapter in my life almost like turning 30 this month uh having people in my life like jenna who i can talk to about these sort of things and we're kind of going through a similar situation where we're trying to find our identity and then on top of that now i have my auntie constantly texting me because she's <laughs> she's you know she's looking at our ancestry she's looking more into the culture she's but then she's again trying to get me to get the card and i i just don't I don't want to because I just feel like I'm I'm taking away and I I just I feel like I'm starting to get out of that guilt but it's still there and I I remember also talking with my grandmother you know she uh grew up with you know her dad was indigenous 
her mom was Ukrainian and um the the whole family her brothers you know had more facial features they were darker skinned um whereas the the women weren't and even with that, you know, they grew up in the 40s. Like, they were born in the 40s, grew up in the 50s, 60s. During the residential school time, they were able to avoid it. And I never asked her this, but our family, like, her her father and her mother, they never talked about it. Their family never talked about it. And uh, it's just so interesting hearing from different perspectives. And, and I, I don't know if it was to dodge the residential school system, because I know she didn't go through it. But it's just hearing these stories, it's, for me in my journey, it's helping me grow. And, you know, again, harping back to like social media and hearing stories like Jenna and yourself, Christy, it's just, I feel a relation to it and it's kind of helping me grow too. And I I hope that continues for the new generation as well. Yeah, it it was a a survival um, mechanism really to not talk about it, whether it was because of residential school or child protective services, or even just being accepted in your community. Um, after, um, you know, the Red River Rebellion and whatnot, you, you had a choice. You either, um, for a lot of people, you either went um, more Indigenous and kept that way of life, or you moved, you know, further further West or maybe back East, but you, and you tried to fit in as white um, because... Um, you know, well, up until really recently, everybody was considered to be traitors. I, I'm a generation we grew up hearing that um, Louis Riel was a, a traitor, which I don't know. It's like that. So when you when you um, are, are indigenous and in passing or involved in indigenous community and, and and living in the settler world, you're like privy to a lot of experiences that other people don't necessarily have. People say racist things in front of you. You go to school and you're being taught things that don't seem quite right to you. Um, I, I think. It's important even for people who um, are passing and feel like they have privilege to stand up and be counted and reclaim that. Um, You know, our government goes off a lot of statistics. The colonial world goes off statistics and it still continues part of the erasure. If they make you feel that because you have privilege, you shouldn't stand up and be counted, then they say, well, you know, the Métis community is dwindling. And the truth is, um, you know, if we look at it in a really colonial way of blood quantum, eventually that blood is is going to be diluted. And if you're if you're passing and you choose to not identify as indigenous, eventually they're just going to erase indigenous people. Hmm. So that's a good um, way of looking at it. Yeah, I think if that's your community and who you belong to, you need to you need to stand up and be counted so yeah, that it can't be erased. If and I'm so going to be know. like totally honest I would say there's definitely a level of shame to it like growing up in the 90s it it obviously the language was different back then but indigenous peoples were portrayed in a very negative light oh yeah and it it was like why would I want that and that's very privileged for me to say because I'm white and I was able to not have to you know say anything that I didn't want to and I don't know. It's just so complicated. And I look back and I'm like, almost like ashamed of my younger self. (laughs) But then I'm like, no, I just was doing what was in the moment. That was life in the nineties. Yeah. And you know what I see a lot with racism is, and I've seen this like um, with, with my ex-husband, for example, who's done um, really well, um, made a good name for himself, like working in the oil patch. And how many times people will say things to him like, 
you know, I don't really think of you as indigenous, like you're, you're white, you're cowboy. Um, so we, people who want to be racist, they tend to think of those people who are unhoused, people who are having struggles with addictions. Well, they're indigenous, but the people who are being successful, well, they're really white. Mm. And we see a lot of this going on. Even if people aren't conscious that they're doing it, they are. It's important for everybody who's indigenous to stand up and say, I'm indigenous, because that helps break down those those um, confirmation biases that people are having. When people you're interacting with know you're identifying as indigenous, it makes it a little bit harder for them to start weighing people on this side and people on, on that side. Going off of exactly what you're saying, it's just kind of clicking because my experience, very similar to Jenna's growing up, north side of Edmonton, though it was very multicultural, right? I did have indigenous friends, but when there was something going wrong, when there's crime in the community, where was the finger pointing, right? And, and that's, and oh, but it wasn't my friends. These are, they're doing this over there. And I think that's the mindset that's, now people are getting away from it more and more so. And, um, you know, looking at the RCMP and, and just people in authority, now people are pointing the finger at them to, you know, yeah. stop what they're kind of doing. Relearning that's, almost. Yeah, that's systematic racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's 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 just great with what time we're in right now. Well, and I think even in our community, some of the – people we consider as like the founding pioneers or um, people who've been very successful business people. Um, people don't even, sometimes don't even realize that those people are indigenous. Like they might belong to the Fort St. John Métis society, for example, or, um, but they're not telling everybody else, you know, it's like, I guess something you go around and broadcast, but there's a lot of really successful people that a lot of other people don't realize people outside the community don't realize that those are indigenous people. And so they, you know, want to perpetuate that stereotype that everybody indigenous just living off the government and all this. And they don't realize how much of our economy is driven by people who are visibly and non-visibly um, indigenous here. I think people would be pretty shocked if they understood um, how much of the wheels turn in this community because of indigenous people. Well, and I think there's also so many mis- misconceptions like with Métis, for instance, like when I was growing up, I always, like I heard the term half-breed a lot. Um, I didn't know, like I, I had also heard a lot that Métis wasn't considered to be, I guess the wording mm. now would be Indigenous. Uh, so it was very confusing growing up, not even really fully knowing like what it meant. And mm-hmm. there was not really any information for me to even kind of go for I don't know it's it's so interesting there's so much more to identity now than there was growing up like sorry you go ahead I was just gonna (laughs) say going off of what you're saying it's almost like in certain communities and it seems similar from where you grew up in Crown Brook Mm -hmm. to, to Edmonton is is almost like people were instilling fear into us about indigenous people like not oh, yeah. knowing that I'm Métis and, and thinking I'm just well, another white person that's like I would instilling say it. instilling fear on a lot of things oh, like yeah. sexuality yeah, exactly. big time that was a big exactly. one I mean I we had one gay person in my whole high school right and it, obviously there probably was more at the time but mm-hmm. he was the only one that was out and it, so it, like there's I, I think there was just shame and fear driven 
in a way because they wanted us to be a certain way. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a tool of colonization to try and make everybody very homogenous and the same. And if you are an outlier of that, that you will be punished severely by society for that. And, and part of that is creating confusion around what does it mean to be Métis? What is Métis disconnecting you from that ancestral knowledge of what that means? The other thing is um, creating the stereotypes like the Pocahontas and then teaching that back to people who maybe haven't had access um, to their community. You see a lot of younger generations, if they've been disenfranchised from their cultural heritage because of things like residential school, that sometimes are being taught back in books or movies or even in the school system, something that's totally not accurate to who they are and where um, where they come from. For example, like Sherman Alexi talking about how uh, when he was growing up, what they learned about Indians, they rode around on horses and, you know, wore headdresses, but he came from salmon people. And um, so that creating that confusion around identity is part of colonization. If you're confused around your identity and um, you don't know where to connect in, you're not getting uh, proper uh, answers, your best and safest bet is to assimilate with that homogenized community because you don't know where else you fit. So if you want to fit and belong, and as humans, we're all driven to fit and belong, then you're going to try and fit in as best you can with settler community because you are you feel like you're flailing out here and you don't know your culture. So the more that we um, bring back Indigenous culture, revive, um, uncover what the elders have been um, holding for us like all this time and make sure that our children get that knowledge, um, the less that they're going to feel that pressure that they have to. And and I, I don't think um, that having uh, diversity is a bad thing at all. We tend to, I don't know, sometimes there's like this feeling that we all have to like, because we're on the same train and headed, um, you know, the same route that we all have to be exactly the same. But when we bring different frames of, of knowledge and knowing in, that's where the real magic happens. You look at the Renaissance, that had largely to do with, um with influences coming um, largely out of the Middle East, but also out of Asia and then mixing with European knowledge. And that's what enabled the Renaissance and all the technology and science and arts that we, we still revere today and still use today coming out of that mixing. So I think it's important for us to keep indigenous cultures um, alive so that we, we can learn from that. And we really, the track we're on right now as a society is not going very well. So um, going back to, uh, some of those teachings um, from from the people who have always been here could really drive us in a much better direction, I think. The Indigenous culture is obviously a big part of who you are. What parts of it really speak to you the most? Like, um, I, Oh, geez, there's so much of it. Um, I think that the one of the things I love is that there's a place for everybody and with like individual diversity, that there's so much space for that. Um I, th- I don't know. I, th- I think that that's just so important that there's there's a place for everyone. There's a place for people who are really good at hunting and like to go out and do that. And there's a place for people who are good at telling stories. And um, there's a, I don't know, there's a place for somebody who's a good firekeeper. There's just a place for everybody. And um, even people who might have what we call disabilities or I have children who are neurodivergent. Um, there's a sacred place for them. There's a sacred place for people who are two-spirit, people who are trans. There's there's positions for everybody. 
And um, and also the thing that I love um, is actually an Anishinaabe Mawin word, um, Debawin. It means truth, but there's a there's a a lot. It goes a lot deeper than that. But one of the principles of Debawin is that um, we all have our own truth, and those truths are all valid. Like more than one truth can exist at once because we don't all live the exact same reality. And I really like keeping that in mind when I'm trying to communicate and deal with other people, especially my children. The, the, um, you know, teenagers tend to get called really dramatic and it gets easy to forget that what they're going through actually is like, they've got half the life experience. They've got like all these peer stresses and social stresses and it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And to remember that Puberty. my children, <laughs> my children are not being dramatic in their truth is that life is pretty challenging for them um, in this day and age and what they're going through and developing. So um, that's one of the things that, that I love is that inclusion. But to say just in indigeneity is kind of hard because specific things belong to specific cultures and their specific teachings. And I've been really blessed to have elders from many different cultures and being able to, um, to get some great teachings from different areas. One of the reasons, uh, it seems to be the main reason you, you um, wrote the four books with Margaret was for your children. Uh, I was looking at a CBC article a couple weeks ago. Um, it was based off the reception from the visits with the Pope. And uh, one of the names was Waylon, your son, yes. uh, who had spoke. And I, I just, after reading Fatty Legs, after reading some of the old interviews you have done in the past and talking about your children, and then to see him speaking in the article, it, it seemed full circle. He's 16 years old. He seems very intelligent in the culture, and he almost seems like he's a future advocate if he's not considered one now. What's your feeling like knowing that not only is Margaret a hero to your children, but 12 years after Fatty Legs in general, her legacy's living on and she might be potentially a hero to other children that you might never even meet? Yeah, it's um, it feels kind of overwhelming um, at times. I'm, I'm I'm really proud of my son. I had mentioned um, pre-recording that he doesn't really do that well in school, but this is his place where he fits in. He has been mentored since he was a very young child. I took my children on the road with us a lot. He's been mentored from a young child to carry his grandmother's stories and to advocate for that. So. Um, he could easily get up in any presentation that we would give. Um, we, even when he was like eight years old, we probably didn't have to show up. He could have done it all on his own. Um, so um, that, that's that been really inspirational to see. Um, and, and my children all have different ways that they have um, kind of picked up the torch and expressed that themselves. One of the really phenomenal things that we found going to different schools is how many so we'd like to think in this day and age that children have a pretty easy go of it there's the odd child that's being abused but we don't think of children in general as having these same kinds of struggles and we've heard absolutely heartbreaking stories I remember one little girl Métis she had long red hair but very Métis um, and she had been adopted and her adoptive mother um uh, shaved her all her hair off when she got her because she had lice and you know how hard is it to comb the lice out and then her adoptive family had so when we went to go speak in the school the adoptive family and I think this girl's maybe in grade three the adopted family had just sent her back they put her back into care they said she was too much and she was just so sweet I, I, I imagine her I sounded like her school teacher was going to maybe end up eventually having her but heartbreaking so 
Margaret was able to talk to her and um, she had very sensitive teachers. So we set aside time outside school visits for Margaret to talk with her and just give her some hope. Like, you know, I was going through tough things when I was your age and now look um, where I'm at. We met um, one time we were doing a school visit in Vancouver and we had this one boy, it was like a group of boys sitting together. We had this one boy who kept asking questions about the violence. You know, sometimes kids are a little morbid and wanted to know about the abuse. We don't talk, we didn't talk about um, physical abuse in detail in school visits. And he was just like, you know, did the teachers hit you? Were you beat with sticks? And afterwards the school principal explained that those boys grew up in um, an Iranian refugee camp. They were from Afghanistan and their teachers regularly beat them with sticks and he said that like if they got called to the office just to be checked in on they would like start bowing and they would be like so scared that the principal was going to hurt them and so through hearing margaret's story they were seeing themselves in that story um and you just never know what children are going through children are pretty good at hiding abuse but also we have a number of refugee children children coming from all sorts of backgrounds and the amount of children who shared their stories with us and what they got out of Margaret's story and how they were seeing that for hope for themselves. Um, I know that that really filled Margaret up. Um, Pre-COVID when we do school visits, sometimes we have a gymnasium of 500 kids and we would be late for the next school visit because the kids would just just um, like impromptu make this huge lineup and every kid would have to hug her on the way out of the gymnasium or the auditorium and be like an hour of her hugging every kid and then Aww. like trying to rush to the next school visit where she's just going to hug all the kids again. <laughs> for some of them, that might be the only hugs, safe hugs that they were getting. So, so what would you say to, you know, like maybe there's a teenager listening right now that might be struggling with their identity and, and who they really are. What, what would you say to that, that child now? Well, I think, for anybody, but for some people, their journey is going to be bigger. Struggling, um, that mediation, the balance between what the outside world expects and who you are in yourself. I saw Margaret do that her whole life. She actually turned it into a superpower, though, um, where, like, fashion, she loved fashion. Lots of people in the community probably have her beadwork and things she made, where she would mix tradition with, um, you know, more settler-style things or more modern things, negotiating um, that way there's always going to be that negotiation you can find your way like margaret to do it on your own terms and how that's going to be um for some people that's going to be to um it, it's going to be it, i mean it's difficult but i think there's a way that like for margaret she found her way i guess this is, what is you can find your way through to finding where it can be your superpower negotiating who you are and bringing that to the outside world but always leaning heavier on who you are, um, who you are inside. Um, identity is a really difficult thing and it's a, a really personal thing. And hopefully you'll be able to find your, um, your own sense of community to support you and to, um, to give you that backing. I know, um, I have a, my youngest child is trans and I really hope that the example of their grandmother taking life on her own terms will show him, um, how to navigate that or at least be strong and tell people off when they need to be told off. Um, I, I think that's where Indigenous culture is really beautiful as well, where you've got this whole nest of community. Um, nothing happens totally individually. Um, colonization has broken some of that, but I hope for children struggling with gender, sexual identity, even um, 
you know, with racial issues, whatever it is, that they'll have, they can find their nest. You might not be born with your nest, but if they could find their nest and their community ecosystem that's going to keep them and support them, you don't have to do it on your own. Yeah, I think holding space, I think, is what I notice the most uh, when I'm in the Indigenous communities or speaking with, it's like there's just a little bit more space, a little bit more time in between um, answering questions. There's just, it's just a little bit more holding space. And if you can find those people to hold that space for you, I think it's, that's, that's what you need. Yeah. It's one of the beautiful things I find about ceremonies. Maybe one of the things I'm most grateful about with the ceremony I do is a very tough ceremony, um, physically, mentally, spiritually demanding. And sometimes you see people just doubled over in tears, letting go of traumas that who knows how long they're. And nobody comes by and says, talk about it, tell me more about it. Or they don't say, you know, suck it up, but, you know, um, hand you tissue and you're just supposed to wipe away the tears. I mean, if you do get a tissue, um, that goes to the sacred fire and that's, those tears are sacred. People just come by and they say, just let it out. Just let it out. They don't ask you what you're crying about. They don't ask you what you're getting upset about. They just stand there and support you and hold the space for you and keep you feeling safe so you can let it out. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing we can all learn from is just make space for people to express what they need to to express. Yeah. And I think on that note, I think, thank you so much for doing this with us. And uh, we've really wanting to have this conversation for a while and, and you're so the perfect person for it. So thank you so much for <laughs> thank doing you. this. Uh, so that brings us to our last question, which is what does reconciliation mean to you? Probably I'm more cynical than most of the answers that you're going to get. Um, I believe in reconciliation as a grassroots movement, not as a government or a corporate catchphrase. I have very little uh, faith in that. I think it's just um, uh, morphed kind of in hiding another form of colonization. Um, but I think the youth are making and taking, um, not asking for it, not waiting for it. They're not waiting for an apology. They're just making and taking their spaces um, to be Indigenous and to negotiate their identity on their own terms. Um and in reconciliation as I have known it has been very grassroots. So I think of uh, one of the very few people or very first people in this town, Crystal, um, very beautiful teacher who reached out to me when Fatty Legs was first published, wrote a lesson plan around Fatty Legs and was like curious and needed to get this into schools. And then I started having people all across Canada reaching out, all across the world reaching out to write lesson plans. These were teachers that were not waiting for reconciliation. They didn't wait for the, um, they didn't, they didn't wait for the um, recommendations to come out. They didn't wait for mandates and, and school boards to for vote like on the it. curriculum to change kind of thing. They yeah. just found any way that they could slip it in, whether it was like through a novel study, it was in free reading time, wherever they could slip it in, they did. And they were asking me, what other resources can we use? What other books would you recommend? They started doing their own research and it was very grassroots. And that is how I've known reconciliation, even with the people, um, you know, uh, Indigenous peoples, um, like Margaret's community, they put together a healing circle. And this was before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission happened. They put together a healing circle, and it was um, somewhat of a school reunion. But people sat, and they decided they were going to support each other and share their stories. And this has happened everywhere. Um, uh, confirming, I wouldn't say finding, confirming that the bodies are at these schools, that's been organized by the communities as grassroots. So it will be the grassroots settler community 
connecting in with grassroots indigenous community and, and making, and, and the youth especially, and the connection between the youth and elders. They're going to make the um, make reconciliation on their own terms, but as a government-mandated thing or waiting on an apology from the Pope, I don't put much faith in any of that. Okay, well, thank you. I, I love that answer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Christy. Thank you. What an absolutely deep episode I felt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was wonderful talking with Christy. And again, like we said in the intro, she was just such a great choice to talk to about our identities. And it's something that I find we needed to do. Like, mm-hmm. I, I wanted us to open up a little more and with any of our listeners we want you to see a little bit into why we're doing this we haven't completely explained we did in the first episode with gary oker the first episode of the podcast we did it briefly because we do want to lend voices to indigenous peoples in the peace region uh for those who don't know but as well we're the ones doing this podcast we're human beings we're going through things and i think it was just so important to, to to put that out there as well yeah, and we're just wanting to let you guys in a little bit more and show you a little bit more about who we are. One way of doing that is going to our social media accounts. <laughs> yeah, you can follow us on Twitter. <laughs> uh, my handle is at Jenna Moreland, J-E-N-N-A-M-O-R-L-A-N-D. And Trey's, because he doesn't even know what his handle is, I'll read it out for you. It is at Trey Jordan. T-R-E-J-O-R-D-A-N. Since we did a selfish plug, let's do a selfless one and uh, name some of the books that Chrissy Jordan Fenton and her mother-in-law, Margaret Uliman, had co-authored together. Uh, One of them is When I Was Eight. The other one is Not My Girl, A Stranger at Home. And the last book, which we talked about at length, like that was one of the main books we touched on because Jenna and I had both read it before uh, meeting with Christy, was Fatty Legs. Yes, and I think everybody... And their children, obviously, for appropriate age, should read this book. It's very important. Um, And, yeah, you can definitely pick it up at Kohl's. Kohl's, internet, wherever you get your books, they should be there. Make sure you guys subscribe to Before the Peace using your favorite podcast app or at energeticcity.ca slash podcasts. If you have a guest or program idea, email beforethepeace at moosefm.ca. Toodaloo. Thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast. Energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to energeticcity.ca slash join.